And just while you're looking for the place in the Word of God, I don't want to multiply personal words. We're here to worship God. But can I just express my appreciation for the opportunity of fellowship in the worship of the Lord? And uh, I have heard of the cause here in Watersham for many, many years, uh, for most of my Christian life, and of the testimony to the truth in this place. And it is our prayer that that testimony to the truth of the whole counsel of God will by his grace be sustained and prospered in the days to come. Well, John chapter 18 and verse 6. John 18 and verse 6. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Our theme this morning is the Sovereign Redeemer. The Sovereign Redeemer. The Gospel of John is a part of the Word of God which contains much material that is not found elsewhere, not found in the other uh, three gospel accounts. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle John assumes a knowledge of the other gospels, and his aim is uh, especially to set forth the divine glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in at the beginning of this Gospel of John, we have in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when uh, the account is given of the first miracle of the changing of the water into wine, we have this comment that uh, our Lord Jesus began to show forth his glory. And then towards the end of John's Gospel, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have Thomas's uh, acknowledgement and confession of Christ, my Lord and my God. And so this Gospel of John is particularly concerned to set before us the divine majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the case also in this account of his arrest and his being bound and being taken to Annas first of all. Let us consider firstly Christ's sovereignty displayed. Christ's sovereignty displayed. We see that Christ goes to meet his enemies in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, which was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Here our Lord Jesus goes from the upper room to Gethsemane, of all places to go 
he went to Gethsemane. He'd already dismissed Judas uh, to his work of treachery in chapter 13 and verse 21. When Jesus uh, had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And then in verse 26 of that chapter, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. So there the Lord Jesus, knowing all things that should come to pass, he, as it were, dismisses Judas uh, from the Last Supper. And yet here, our Lord Jesus goes to a place that he had often gone to and which Judas would know. So in verse 2, Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. We might think, why did not the Lord Jesus go to some other place, some different place, a place that Judas did not know where he would be? But he didn't. He went to this place and he went to a place knowing that Judas knew the place, knowing that Judas would be able to lead uh, the en- his, his enemies to that place. So here we have our Lord Jesus' sovereignty displayed in his deliberately uh, going to a place where his enemies would find him because he was giving his life. He was laying down his life for the sheep. And our Lord Jesus here faces a strange combination of enemies. In verse 3, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They came with a, Judas came with a band of men. The word suggests a cohort, a Roman detachment that officially would number some 600 men, but often was less than that. But nevertheless, this was a substantial body of men. And it indicates that Pilate would have known of this arrest. They came with weapons. They came with swords and staves. And then we're told, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These officers were the temple guards coming to arrest the Lord Jesus, the one of whom it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, the one who was consumed with zeal for the temple as the house of of his father. And yet here the temple guards come to apprehend him as an evildoer. And they came from the chief priests. The high priesthood had been and was being passed around various members of a particular family, a family of Sadducees. The Sadducees were somewhat akin to the liberal churchmen of the present day. And yet, Here they are uh, sending these men 
to apprehend the Lord Jesus. They came from the chief priests who were Sadducees, but also from the Pharisees, because they were able to make common cause, the liberals and the proud, self-righteous Pharisees, those who were proud of their supposed righteousness, and those who were proud of their supposed intellect and ability and philosophy, as the Sadducees were, because much of what they held was on the uh, uh, concession to Greek philosophy. And here they combined together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then we have Judas himself. Judas led them to the place. Judas, the professed disciple, this man who professed to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, but in his heart he never was, and he was a lover of money. Perhaps when he'd begun outwardly to follow the Lord Jesus, he hoped that the Lord Jesus would be that political, military, and economic Messiah that he and many Jews yearned after. But as time went on, the Lord Jesus failed to measure up to his sinful expectations. And he became disillusioned, as did many who had outwardly followed the Lord Jesus when they thought he was going to be the deliverer who would deliver the Jews from their political enemies and oppressors, the Romans, and would vindicate them as the righteous people. But he didn't. And the initial interest waned. So it was with Judas, surely, that Judas inwardly became more consciously disillusioned and filled with contempt and resentment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he made the best of it. He had the bag and he stole money from it. He was a thoroughgoing materialist. He wasn't interested in a Messiah, a Christ, who came to redeem sinners. He saw himself as a practical man who wanted to get things done. And in the end, he betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed him with a kiss, a token of friendship. Others who outwardly followed but were not born of the Spirit, they stopped pretending long before this. You know, back in John chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus taught, No man cometh unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and so on. And they said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When, it, when they said this is a hard saying, they're not saying it's a difficult saying. They're saying it's a harsh saying. It's an unbearable saying. But Christ said it nonetheless. But from that time, many of them went back and walked no more with him. But Judas didn't. 
When Christ said to the disciples, Will ye also go away? They answered, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Others had outwardly rejected Christ. These true disciples owned Christ as the one who had the words of eternal life. Judas, though he really belonged to the first category, he hung in there and pretended to be one of the second. He went on pretending, pretending, pretending. And even when he betrayed Christ, he was still pretending. He pretended, betraying him with a kiss, pretending to be the friend of Christ when he despised Christ, pretending until he was overtaken with despair and killed himself and went to his own place. But the Lord Jesus was never deceived by Judas. It's worth noting that in Psalm 41 verse 9, Psalm 41 and verse 9, we read, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. This verse, or part of it, is quoted in John 13 and verse 18. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, what you notice there is that part of the verse is quoted in reference to Judas, but not all of it. Because David's betrayal by Ahithophel was uh, a type, it was a forerunner, of Christ's betrayal by Judas. But the difference was that David trusted in Ahithophel, whereas the Lord Jesus was never deceived by Judas. And that's why the phrase, in whom I trusted, in Psalm 41 verse 9, is not applied to the betrayal of the Lord Jesus by Judas, because the Lord Jesus, unlike David, never trusted Judas. He knew who would betray him. Whereas David did not. And so in the providence of God and uh, in the giving of the scripture, the part of that text is applicable and points toward the betrayal of the Lord Jesus by Judas. But not all of it. Because the Lord Jesus was never deceived by Judas. He knew what was in Judas. He knew who would betray him. That's why he spoke to him as he did at, at the Last Supper table. And uh, the Lord Jesus, therefore, in verse 4, we're told, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. He knew that Judas would betray him. And yet, in Matthew's account, when Judas comes, he say, says to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Because although the Lord Jesus was not deceived by Judas, that does not mean that he did not feel the pain of betrayal. Because he did. Betrayal was painful. Even though Christ knew, it was still a painful thing. And it 
it vexed the righteous soul of the Lord Jesus to see Judas's sinful contempt for his Messiahship. Of course it did. The Lord Jesus was perfectly holy and therefore his righteous soul was vexed with sin far beyond anything that Lot knew. You know that Lot, a very imperfect uh, child of God, that his righteous soul was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. But Lot was a far from perfect uh, saint of God. And yet here the perfect sinless Lord Jesus, God become man without any sin. How must his soul have been vexed by sin all around him? It was part of his, uh, part of his sufferings that his righteous, holy, sinless soul should be vexed by the contradiction of sinners. And the betrayal of Judas was contempt for the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus. That's why in Luke's uh, Gospel he says, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of Man is a title of the Messiah taken from Daniel 7 verse 13 where uh, Daniel sees one like unto the Son of Man come near to the Ancient of Days. It was a title of the Christ of God. And the Lord Jesus says to Judas, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And so there was affliction upon the soul of the Lord Jesus because of the wickedness of Judas in his betrayal of the Christ of God. And his hatred of Christ was hatred of the Father. But Christ confronts his enemies in verse 4, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. When we think of Christ being arrested and bound and taken, we instinctively, but wrongly, think of helplessness. Because in normal human experience, arrest and binding indicate powerlessness. We are inclined, quite wrongly, to impute this to the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus was not powerless. No, not even now in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went forth, we're told in verse 4. He went forth and said unto them, This band of men, Judas, the temple officers, the Roman soldiers, they're all there. And he comes perhaps out of, uh, from among the trees and he stands before them and he says, Whom seek ye? Whom seek ye? They constantly wanted to treat him as ordinary. And so they bring all these soldiers in order to head off any attempted escape. They arrange with Judas this secret sign of a kiss to make sure they get the right man in case there's confusion and tumult and they want to seize him and make sure they get him. They want to treat the Lord Jesus as ordinary. And so they come with staves and with 
swords and with force of arms. Of course, people still want to treat the Lord Jesus as ordinary, don't they? The liberals want to reduce him to ordinariness as far as they can. But he isn't. And he doesn't behave in the manner that a mere man would do. He doesn't run. He doesn't scramble to escape. They didn't need all these swords and soldiers. And he says, I am he. I am he. Showing the foolishness of Judas's wicked sign of a kiss. They didn't need it. He comes forth and says, I am he. And they fell backward. We're told that in verse 6. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. This coming to meet them was not the resignation of one helplessly cornered. Mere men, when they're cornered, they give up. They realise the game's up, they're trapped, they can't escape. But that's not what's happening here. The Lord Jesus comes forward and says, I am he, and they fall backward. Here is a, a, a final demonstration of his power over his enemies. That they fall backward. When he says, I am he, demonstrating once more his power and his sovereignty and his might. And that when they shall take him, it's not because he is powerless, but because he's giving his life a ransom for many. And the Lord Jesus keeps his sheep in the presence of his enemies. See in verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. And this time they don't fall backward. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Christ prayed for his people that they will be kept. And he keeps his sheep and he does it in two ways. He gives grace to help in the time of need. But he also governs and measures the extent of their trials. And he always ensures that the grace given is sufficient for the trial sent. And so that whilst his people are not preserved from all sin and all failure, they are preserved from complete departure from the truth of God and from the faith. That, I believe, is the meaning of Psalm 125 and verse 3. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the, le the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Now, it, it is true, of course, that the rod of the wicked does oppress the righteous in varying measures and at varying times. But God shall so order things that it shall never be the case that his people shall be so oppressed by the wicked 
that they, that they shall apostatize utterly and join the wicked and depart from the faith. In other words, what we have there is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that God will so measure affliction and give grace for that affliction that his people are kept, kept by the providence of God governing the extent of their affliction and by his inward grace sustaining them through that measured affliction. And so here the Lord Jesus speaks to the, his enemies and said, If ye seek me, let these go hence. He was measuring the affliction and trial that would come upon them. In later days, he would give greater inward strength by the Spirit to support them in greater trials, but not at this time. And so he preserves them by sparing them much of affliction and pain. So our Lord Jesus shows his sovereignty in the presence of his enemies. But then secondly we have Christ's sovereignty ignored by his enemies. Christ's sovereignty ignored by his enemies. In verse 12 we're told, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. They took him. They took hold of him. They seized him. They arrested him. And they bound him as if they are in charge. But Christ had just caused them to fall backwards by saying, I am he. But then they, they recover. They pick themselves up. And they take him. Why didn't they stop? Why didn't that display of Christ's power in causing them to fall, why didn't it stop them? Even perhaps more graphically, the, the high priest's servant, Malchus, whose ear was cut off by Peter, we're told in Luke's gospel that Christ healed him. Luke 22 and verse 50 and one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. So here we have the picture that Christ says, I am he. And they fall backwards. Peter, in his rashness, pulls out his sword, cuts off the, the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Christ touches him and heals him. But they don't stop. They took him. They seized him. Why didn't they stop when they saw the power of Christ? When he caused them to fall backwards? When he healed the ear of this young man? How did they not stop? Surely it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense. And it makes sense because sin is not rational. Sin is unreasonable. The liberals, they say the miracles didn't take place and that explains it. But that's just an expression of their utter contempt for the Lord Jesus and lack of understanding and appreciation of the majesty and glory of Christ and of the depravity of the heart of man. We might say, surely with such displays of his power at this very last moment, 
they would pull back, but they don't. Because sin is utterly unreasonable. Sin is ludicrous. Sin is self-deceiving. And men are capable of ignoring anything in their love of sin. Sin is always illogical. When Satan rebelled against the infinite God, did he imagine that he could defeat the Almighty? But sin is like that. Sin gives delusions, utterly foolish delusions. In the parable of the vineyard, the keepers of the vineyard said, Here is the heir, let us kill him. Did they not think that the owner of the vineyard would do something about it? But it didn't stop them. And so it is here, as Christ had said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan and the demons relish this hour. They could not attack the throne of God. The throne of God was beyond their reach. And so in the Old Testament, as I as some of you heard yesterday, they, they afflicted the people of God in the Old Testament. They Satan attacked the people of God and sought to extinguish the promise of the Redeemer. And so in Revelation 12 and verse 4, and his tail drew the third part, this is the dragon, the red dragon, did drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan hated the promise of the coming redeemer that the seed of the woman should crush the head of the serpent. And so all through the Old Testament there was uh, Satan's endeavors by means of Pharaoh and Haman we mentioned yesterday to destroy not only the people of God, but the promise of the coming Redeemer. And then, when Christ was born, you remember Herod sought to slay the infants in order to destroy the Christ of God. But you might say, how is it then, if Satan feared the coming of Christ, and feared the redemptive work of Christ. Why then in the wilderness did he seek to tempt Christ away from the cross? And yet at the same time he entered into Judas to betray Christ. How are those things reconcilable? That Satan on the one hand sought to deflect Christ from the cross and yet entered into Judas to take him to the cross. How can they be reconciled? Well, in themselves they can't. But you see, sin is like that. On the one hand, Satan dreaded the Redeemer's work, but on the other hand, so great is his love of wickedness, that when God was manifest in the flesh and the opportunity was there to stir up wicked men to do harm to the Christ of God in his human nature, he could not cease from sin. 
And so there is an irrationality, a contradiction within the devices of Satan. Because although Satan is of great power and great ability, sin by its very nature has the absurdity in it. It has something utterly irrational. And so even though the cross of Christ would be the means of the destruction of the works of the devil, yet still Satan cannot cease from sin and enters into Judas and pushes him forward, the, uh, a work that he did willingly, but yet with the, with the emboldenment of satanic power to, dis, to betray the Lord Jesus. Because sin is irrational, absurd, ludicrous, despite all the pretensions of clever sinners to great logic and reason and so on. Sin is madness. And that's why if you're not a Christian, you delude yourself with wishful thinking. You tell yourself that you can go on in your sins and that somehow everything will be all right in the end, but it won't. But that's the madness of sin. The wishful thinking of sin. And so here, Satan having entered into Judas, Judas betrays Christ. And here, Judas and the others, having been driven backwards, having seen Christ heal the high priest's servant's ear, still they take him. Because they cannot cease from sin. But then thirdly, Christ's sovereignty not appreciated by his disciples. Christ's sovereignty not appreciated by his disciples. The other Gospels tell us that they fled. True it is in verse 8 that the Lord Jesus says, If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. But they didn't just go their way in a God-fearing, believing kind of a way, they fled in terror and in panic. And as we look at Peter, we can learn how even true disciples of Christ can fail to appreciate the sovereignty and majesty of the Lord Jesus. In verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter treats the Lord Jesus as too ordinary. Christ's enemies did. They came with force of arms, assuming they would be needed, and assuming that they were dealing with a mere man. But here's Peter following suit. Treating Christ the way they treated him. In the sense that they thought they needed arms to arrest him as an ordinary man. And Peter thinking he needed to draw his sword and fight in order to defend the Lord Jesus. 
They came with swords and staves, expecting a struggle. Peter is ready to give them one. Christ does not let his enemies treat him in that way. And he doesn't let Peter go unchecked in trying to do the same. We must not let the world teach us their view of Christ. Peter was following the, the world. This is how they treated him. Peter follows the same method in trying to defend him. Because his view of Christ is too low. And Christ tells him in Matthew's account we're told that the Lord Jesus tells him, Thinkest thou not that I could not call for twelve legions of angels? He rebukes Peter's wrong view of him. Peter may have completely misunderstood the falling back of the enemies of Christ, as if it was a sign of a counter-offensive, and now he's ready to join the fray. But it was a sovereign display of Christ's power before he gave himself into the hands of his enemies. And we have Peter's ill-conceived courage. There is a kind of bravery in Peter, but there's a lot of sin in it. No doubt there is love to Christ in it, but there's a great deal of sin. See, courage can be sinful. In fact, courage can be exceedingly wicked. We only have to think of the terrorists who risk their lives in order to kill other people. Or if we think of the suicide bombers who deliberately blow themselves up in order to kill others. But it's not a courage that is to be admired in the slightest degree. It is a courage born of a belief of a lie. They believe they're going to paradise when they're really going to hell. And so they blow themselves up. And there's a kind of courage, but it's a wicked courage. And Peter's courage here in drawing his sword is not an admirable courage. You remember he'd boasted Though all men forsake thee, yet will not I forsake thee. And pride can lock us in to trying to fulfill foolish boasts. Peter had said he would stand his ground, and now he feels somewhat obliged to do so. And courage can actually be just pride overriding fear. But Christ clears his messianic name. He clears his name as the Christ of God. Verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it? The Lord Jesus is declaring that he is going to suffer and die because he is drinking the cup which the Father gave him. He is in control. He is laying down his life. And so he healed Malchus's ear. For that purpose, his miracles always had a purpose. All the miracles in Scripture 
have a purpose and a reason. They are never random displays of power. The apocryphal so-called gospels, the books of the apocrypha contain spurious accounts of the life of Jesus. They contain many uh, fictional random displays of power. And of course it is a mark of the Antichrist, lying wonders, to make people gasp, but without any meaning or significance. But the true biblical miracles always have a meaning and a purpose. And Christ, because he came to save sinners, not to destroy in his first coming, so his miracles are of a healing nature rather than a judgmental nature. Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the miracles indicate, they are signs uh, indicating that he is the saviour of sinners. And here this healing of the man's ear is in keeping with the fact that he's declaring himself to be the redeemer. Drinking the cup given to him by the father and laying down his life for the sheep. Well, now, how do we apply this? First of all, Christ's self-giving brought him into unutterable sorrows. Christ's self-giving, his giving of his life, brought him into unutterable sorrows. Our Lord Jesus could have delivered himself. He could have done so earlier. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem. He didn't have to go to Gethsemane. But he didn't. He gave himself into the hands of his enemies to endure the contradiction of sinners. But the outward sufferings were but the tip of the iceberg compared with the inner anguish and suffering of his soul. We can't explain the anguish of Gethsemane. The fact that the Lord Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in terms of the physical sufferings alone that lay before him. They don't explain it. How is it that some Christians have faced immense physical suffering without such anguish. The servant is not above his master. And the answer is because the sufferings of Christ at the hands of men and in his body are the lesser part of his sufferings. That the vastness of his sufferings was in his bearing the wrath of God and his being forsaken of the Father so that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though we can more readily understand the physical sufferings of Christ, they were by no means the only sufferings. The greater sufferings were within as he bore the wrath of God. 
When we see the Lord Jesus bound before Annas in verse 12, we see one who had the power to break the bonds wherewith he was bound, but he did not because the hour had come and the God that cannot lie was fulfilling his promise. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And now his sorrows were coming like a flood. And it was the purpose of God that the Lord Jesus should be isolated from all human comforts. So the disciples flee. And our Lord Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God alone. And so he's brought before Annas, the head of the high priestly family. His son-in-law Caiaphas was high priest and five of his sons and a grandson all held the high priest's office as it was handed round. And here is Annas, representative of all that was vile in the abuse of the father's house at the, uh, which Christ opposed when he cleansed the temple. Here is Annas representing all the iniquity of the false religion and pride and arrogance and unbelief and self-righteousness of Israel. 